During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. This is uh, our sixth summer uh, series. The um, name of the game this summer is, as I always try to do, uh, always comes out in the three weeks, to talk about some aspect of the Jewish past that has to do, not with comedy, but with tragedy. Uh, we got a lot of that in Jewish history. I got uh, plenty of summers worth of material, unfortunately, because Jewish history has its uh, positive eras and its uh, not so positive ones. And so this year, I'm gonna be picking up with actually something I started five, six years ago, which was the story of uh, the Romans and the Jews, actually. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, it's the age of Bar Kokhba, and that usually is what grabs people's attention, um, and it's certainly an important and a tragic episode in our past. We're about to have Shibazah Batamas and Tishabov, and I'm sure many people know that one of the things on Tishabov is Betar, which is, has to do with the Barcochel War. But uh, what I'm going to be trying to do here, what I always try to do, is uh, give a more broader kind of a historical context and, and uh, try to paint a picture of what life was like and what was going on in that very, very complicated and complex era and share my opinion, because remember, that's all you ever get here is my opinion, on, um, on uh, this era of our history, which is so important and so formative in our daily lives, and about which we know so little, because there isn't that many, many sources. It's kind of interesting. And so uh, when you are faced with that kind of situation, to a certain degree, a historian is a kind of an artist, with all the pluses and the minuses of that. So mathematicians and scientists can leave the hall right now. The, um, you art majors and you uh, English guys and pre-law will do, you know, you can stay. Um, as I entitled tonight's uh, talk, Enduring the Unimaginable. Uh, it was not imaginable for so many Jews that the base image would be destroyed. If you recall, not that you have to from years ago, if you have any knowledge of Josephus or sometimes even rabbinic sources, uh, one of the reasons the Jews fight on uh, during the three weeks. Isn't that what we're about to start in two days, the th- so-called three weeks? Well, what is that all about? When the Romans break into the Temple Mount. You've all been in Yerushalayim, I know that. And you've all seen the Kotel, obviously. And by now you're all educated enough to know that the Kotel is not the wall of the base of Migdash, but of the Temple Mount. And there's a big flat area on the top of which is a number of buildings, some of which we call the base of Migdash. So think about this. The Romans have broken in to the Temple Mount. It's not a big area. They're fighting. The Jews are literally down to the last uh, five yards. And they won't give in. Uh, You've lost the whole country, uh, but they won't give in. You've lost the whole city of Jerusalem, just about, and they won't give in. Because it's unimaginable that the Romans will take the base of Megdus. That can't be. God would never let this happen. You'll see at the very last moment, 
lightning will strike them from heaven or something like that. As happened in the time of Chizkiyahu, for example. And uh, you'll see a miracle that will just blow you away. They were just wrong, that's all. <laughs> it was wrong. Uh, and so now, the day after Tisha B'Av, so to speak, after the whole city of Jerusalem goes up in flames, as we know, and the temple is laid flat, the Jews now have to, if they want to continue to survive, uh, deal with an unimaginable situation, something they couldn't ever believe would ever happen. But life has to go on, does it not? And you better, what shall I say, change and modify, because this is the sign of a living organism. It responds to change by changing. You know, and I know, that biblical Judaism is a temple-centered religion. Mid-Araisa, um, no such thing as a shul. No such thing as a chazan. A minion. All that. It all organizes itself around the idea of a mishkan, a temple, a base of mikdash, various offerings. Look at all the great details. Many of us are familiar with kachim and tyrus and things like that in which they go to endless detail about how the temple service is run and what its spin-off is in the rest of the population. Um, now all of a sudden there's no temple. What do you do? Uh, the destruction of the base of Migdash, in other words, requires reforms and modifications to adjust to the new reality. This is nothing new. It was nothing new to them at that time. The Chorban Bayes Risho, the destruction of the first temple, if you have a little bit of a sense of history, triggered a number of very fundamental reforms of the Jewish religion that most of us probably take for granted because we're not aware of the origins of them. This is called the era of what's called the Anche Knesset Agdol, the Men of Great Assembly. One of the most obvious is what I just mentioned. Davening, as we say in our Yiddish. A prayer. Formal prayer. The synagogue. All this is post-Korban. It's a response to new situation and new realities. I don't have to say it. You can look at what the Rambam himself very famously says in the beginning of Hilchos Tfil, or the laws he has for prayers, in which he gives you the historical background of how they invented something called formal prayer. Meaning, as you'll see, uh, There is, in the Torah, a requirement to talk to God once a day. That's how the Rambam understands it. Other great scholars don't even agree with that. They say there's not even a law, min hatorah, you have to pray or talk to God even once a day. Um, but there you have it. Avodah Shabalev. It says you serve the Lord with Avodah Shabalev. Service of the heart, zu tefilo, which means talking to God. Don't tell you how many times a day you have to do it. No such thing as davening three times a day, min hatorah. No such thing as formal, you know, liturgy. In the Torah, believe it or not, once upon a time, it was before King David existed. Obviously, three-quarters of what you have in the prayer book is from the Tehillim. You know that. Once upon a time, there was no Tehillim. Just to give you one example of what I'm talking about. Let's see over here. What the Torah, what God originally said was, uh, You... Speak, speak to God as long as you wish or as short as you wish. Just do it a little bit of a protocol. You know, don't just say, hey, uh, say a few words of praise, then throw in what you want, and then a few words of 
praise as, as a thanks, you know? So uh, looking good today, I need a raise, bad. <laughs> I really need a raise. Looking good, keep it up, bye. That's it. Yotze, the mitzvah deraisa. Well, that's what I just read you. Im bakasha. I'm just trying to illustrate a point over here. If one was eloquent, one would naturally, because they were eloquent and were built that way and spiritual, they were going on at great length. And if one was not articulate, not educated, they would speak according to what they were able to say. And whenever they felt like it, as long as it's one time or another during the day, there's no such thing as shachar and mechamarv. This is the way Judaism was originally a thousand years. That's the way not man set up, that's the way God set it up. Some people are just naturally eloquent, like King David. You know, all that. And another person, especially people who do not have an education, and therefore do not have a large vocabulary, and you cannot blame them, all they can say is, me want money. Right? Or me won't get married. But, well, you, you don't laugh at them. That's not nice of you. Get it? It isn't. This is, it, 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 what, what I'm talking about is a world in which there's no such thing as formal prayer in which your mind wanders. Whatever you say, at least you mean. That's the way they said it. As long as you face towards Jerusalem. And that's the way it was for a thousand years from the time of Moshe until after the destruction of the base of Migdash which triggered a new reality. And Kivan Shagol Yisrael b'meinah b'chanezah Russia. once the Jews went into exile, the Rambam says, nisarvu b'paras v'yoven v'shara umos, they went into a diaspora in which they intermingled. They moved in to neighborhoods inhabited by other peoples, the Greeks, the Persians, whoever. V'nod l'bonam b'artsas ha'goyim, and children were born to them in foreign countries. V'osam ha'bonim nisbalbalus fososam, and the children that grew up because the parents spoke one dialect and the people next door to them spoke a third dialect and this one spoke a second dialect. So the kids grew up without being able to master a single language well. Which, of course, was the reality of anybody my age or older and the older generation of people came over from Europe. Couldn't say a single sentence in one language. Right? Gay, cut from your epis from the car. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you grow up like that? So everyone's language was a mixture, and if you have a mixture of languages, you don't have any language. Then you can only see basic things, and you're held back. As a certain famous Swiss linguist always put it, mankind will always be imprisoned in the prison house of language. Okay. This is why you get an education, at least you're supposed to. If they would try to speak, they wouldn't be able to articulate themselves without making a lot of mistakes. And therefore, they wouldn't, they wouldn't speak. And prayer was going to go away. And so, in order to... Uh, people had too short of a tongue, meaning they were inarticulate, unable to do so. And so he goes on to say, when the leading Jews saw this, they invented something called Shemun Esrei, the 18 brachos, as a template. Right? First three, Shalosh Rishon Hashem, 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 Shalosh Rishon Hashem
You know, the basics, it covers the pretty ba- basic gamuts of life. And anybody can learn and master the Shemona Esri if you make your mind up to do so. It's not long. It's pretty simple. Right? It doesn't take 100 years to learn. That's fairly eloquent. And then you add your own, to, if you wish or don't, as you do. This is the reason they invented that. And he says over here, um, so that they would be mastered and memorized by everybody. And so the prayers of the most inarticulate people would be as advanced and developed as the prayers of the articulate. And that's why they invented what we call brachas. Once upon a time, you picked up an apple, you didn't say a brach. Hopefully, you had enough sense to say thank you, Lord, for, 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 for the apple. Maybe you were jerking, you didn't. That's all. It was up to you. In order that the language of prayer should be aruch befi'a'ilig. Should be laid out even in front of the most inarticulate. I read you that thing, which is a little bit lengthy, simply to point out that something that we take for granted so much fundamental as a synagogue in which we find ourselves right now, prayer, which is the heart of Judaism or any religion, no, once upon a time didn't exist. Existed in a different fashion, and it was a temple-centered religion, and they responded to it. Another very famous, and I want you to understand the the the, uh, tremendous significance of this. But let me just give you two more examples of the extraordinary reforms that were enacted by the Anshik and Esagdol, the men of the Great Assembly, as a response to the destruction of the first temple in order, in their opinion, for the Jewish religion in order to survive. One of them was the canonization of the Bible, which commences now. Meaning the, the, the whole Tanakh that you call 24 books, there are a lot more than 24 books, and some better, some worse, some reliable, some non-reliable. It's a whole long process, which I won't go into great detail now. But by the time they finished their work, Pretty much, they had uh, created a fixed canon. And so, uh, what we all take for granted today, the Siddur and the uh, Bible, which uh, Heinrich Heine famously called the portable fatherland, wherever the Jews found us, well, you didn't have Israel until a couple years ago. For 1900 years, they're wandering around without anything. Uh, what's to keep us all, prevent us from all going off centrifugally? Like, like we have no connection today, for example, with the Falasha, with the Ethiopian Jews, because they just triggered off and we're out of the loop. Why did that happen to everyone? The answer is, wherever you go, although I may speak Yiddish and this one Ladino and this one Arabic and this one this, and I may come from one very distinct cultural context and the other Jew at the other end of the earth comes from a very different cultural context, it's still the same davening and it's still the same Kriyasa uh, Torah uh, and it's still the same Bible. We're talking about the same book. And so look at their wisdom they did some ruthless stuff, but in, in, in their wisdom, they, they emerged with certain basic uh, uh, institutions of commonality which enable us centripetally to hang together and we take it for granted. Wherever you go in the world, anywhere in the world, if you go into a, certainly an Orthodox synagogue, it's going to be Pasha's Pechus this week. Don't take that for granted. It's not a headquarters, we're not a church. And that headquarters send out rules what to, what to do every week. Everybody just knows on their own. Even if I encounter a Jew with whom I have strong arguments over the Bible, at least we're talking about the same book. Right? I could come across, let's say, for example, an atheist Jew. And he says, these stories in the Bible are a bunch of baloney. We're talking about the same thing. 
if we were talking about different books, there wouldn't even be a possibility of a dialogue, even an argument. And so this is a famous ex- example of what I'm talking about. And another one is the beginning of what we call the canonization of the oral law, which is something I'm going to be speaking about during the course of these talks, which is the beginning of uh, the change from the, of the Torah Shavuot, from what it was to what it became. It also commences historically within the period in which there is a reaction or trying to respond to the existential crisis created by the absence of a temple, okay? the, the, the absence of a Jewish state. So we're not unfamiliar with this in, uh, in Jewish history. As I say before, uh, they, they created the institutions that we have all called the portable fatherland that we still do today. The destruction of the second temple in the year 70 uh, was likewise a powerful jolt to the system. Um, obviously, many Jews in shock and despair. I bet you many know the famous uh, story in the Gemara where people came to Rabbi Yahushua and they said, we shouldn't eat, we shouldn't, you know, we, they, they just should be, uh, Tisha B'Av is not enough, they should have more fast days and, and more restrictions, and then he says, well, don't even eat and don't even drink and don't even sleep, it's so terrible. And they said, well, we, that, we, we can't live that way. And he said, oh, you see the point. Uh, you got, you got to do 50-50. You have to constantly keep in mind that your uh, Judaism is terribly uh, truncated, and we have to hope to get the temple back and a state back. But meanwhile, we have to function. Life has to go on. Um, some are familiar with this. Uh, as they say, nishtagadach. You know, if they lose a loved one. So some people, they, 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 the life ends. Life does not end. Right? I mean, it's a, ter- it's a terrible thing. It is. But you have to move on, although at the same time, you have a powerful connection with that which is departed. So this is the situation that the Jewish people as a people face in the wake of the destruction of the year uh, 70. Um, a number of reforms and powerful changes immediately are discernible in uh, the wake of the destruction of the Second Temple. Uh, most importantly, or at least most blatantly, the political reforms. You'll say, what kind of political reform if they wiped everything out? Dasalain is a political reform because the period of the Second Temple, certainly the hundred years prior, uh, was a period of what we call the Pharisees versus the Sadducees and the Herodians, if you want to get down deep in it. I spoke about this five, six years ago in which various Jewish groups or sects, whatever you want to call them, battled each other out uh, out of proportion. Uh, I would recall, for example, during the Hashemunayim period, uh, during the time of, I'm just taking this off the top of my head, when you had uh, Alexander Yane was the ruler of the Jews, the Pharisees and Sadducees, each one killed 50,000 of the other. These are Jews killing Jews. Um, these kind of tensions and violence always there during late Second Temple period, and then the Romans come and it gets a lot worse. And the Romans bring in Herod, who sets up his own mafia, but that's what it was. And as far as the Roman authorities are concerned, the emperors, let's say from Augustus on, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, uh, the people in charge of the Jews are the uh, aristocrats of Judea, the Herodians and the Sadducees for the most part, and uh, they were a cancer on the Jewish people. It's a long story to go into, but they, they corrupted everything, and they sucked the uh, public treasury dry, and they changed the Torah. They tried, you know, they, they, they wanted to uproot the religion, 
and uh, it was a real problem. After the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, they're gone. We don't hear from them again ever in Jewish history. It's kind of interesting. The theory has been advanced by some very firm historians. Uh, it's plausible, certainly, which is uh, they left because there was nothing. It's, it's like a parasite. If, if, if the state is gone, no need hanging around. Uh, you, you're not going to fight over who keeps the money from the temple if there ain't no temple and ain't no money. You see? You're not going to fight over offices of the state if there's no state, if Jerusalem is flat. Um, Herod's sister, Herod Agrippa's sister, and Herod Agrippa himself, who were the two Herodians in charge of a lot of Judea at that time, they went to Rome with Titus. Uh, they didn't stay back in Judea because Rome is where the action is. And who wants to live in a desolate province inhabited by a bunch of then half dead, dying Jews and, and all that sort of thing. It's a, and the leftovers, the detritus of the, uh, of the recent war. Um, Herod Agrippa's sister, Bernice, was the mistress of, of Titus. Um, and so we're talking about a class, a political class, if you wish, of extreme decadence who are gone because they're not in, Judy's no longer interesting for them to hang around. And the only thing was there is good riddance. And so what happens is that those who were powerful and could not be displaced simply move because of the effects of the, uh, of the uh, destruction of the temple, the elimination, as they say, of the Sadducees and the Herodians. Um, the Jews existentially had a problem with it. This is the Roman Empire. There's Israel right there where I'm pointing, right? Look how little it is. Uh, I always bemoan, looking back historically, the tragedy of Roman-Jewish relations. If the Jews are that small... No need for them to get into a quarrel with the Roman Empire. No need for the Roman Empire to get in a quarrel with the Jews. They could just fit into there, and if you want to get down to it, what did Rome want from uh, Judea? Um, wasn't a big and powerful province. Look at some of these other provinces compared to Israel. It's, it's ridiculous. So Egypt, for example, or Asia Minor, places like that. Uh, they just wanted that uh, the Romans should have the right to march their troops through whenever they want. Uh, the Romans should control the politics, so whoever's in charge of Judea shouldn't uh, hook up politically with some enemy of Rome. Um, perhaps uh, taxes, I don't even think that was such a big deal, but let's say it was. Uh, it's possible to cut a deal where the Jews would be left on their own and allowed to have their own temple and religion, which is what, they, which, what most of the people cared about. And so they'll pay whatever taxes they can to the overlord, it is the destiny of the Jewish people, ever since biblical times, the destiny of Israel uh, never to be a major power. To always be subordinate, one way or another, to a superpower. That's who we are. You can go back to biblical times, either it was Babylonia, or Assyria, or uh, Persia, Egypt sometimes, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, and today it's America, or some, or, or, or some variation thereof. America's pretty benevolent, but that, that, that's the bottom line. Israel doesn't have... Uh, uh, freedom, but they're, they're, they're still uh, dependent on the aid. I don't have to tell you that. That's who we are. Uh, Israel doesn't have the luxury or to indulge idiocies like, the, you know, go fighting big countries. Although we've done that in our past to our regret. Um, anyway, and so if you hadn't had these uh, bad people in the middle, the Sadducees, these corrupt aristocrats, the Herodians, real mafia types, I mean really mafia types, uh, interposing themselves between the emperors and the Roman governments on the one hand and the Jews on the other, uh, a deal, a very nice, equitable deal could have been cut 
from day one. But I spoke about this at great length before. I'm not going to go at it now. I will simply make the point that uh, who emerges as the leaders of the Jews once the uh, bad guys are gone, it's the sages, the rabbis, by process of elimination. Nobody else wants to hang around. The Jewish people wasn't an attractive item anymore. There was no country and no money to attract the power-hungry. And so the only people who want to hang around are people who come from the ranks of the people and care about the people. It's interesting. You get what I'm saying? The Frum didn't beat the, those who weren't. They out-survived them. And they were, willing, they were willing to hang on when times weren't so good. It wasn't so much fun to be Jewish. When it wasn't so much fun to be Jewish, a lot of people left. They said, I only want to be around when it's fun. By definition, the only people left were those who say we want to be there even when it's not fun. And so we find that uh, this is the era of the Chachamim as political actors in Jewish history, something we don't see before, and at least doesn't come out of the, uh, out of the sources. Uh, we only know about a few of the sages. Here, here we run into problems from a historical point of view, the artistic side that I mentioned before. We don't have a lot of information. Um, none of them appear anywhere outside rabbinic literature. Um, the voice of Josephus ends with the destruction of the temple. So we don't have a historian even of one uh, quality or another who gives us a continuous narrative of what's going on at that time. Um, whose voice does tell us about this period in history? It's very tricky. Uh, the Chazal aren't into writing history. We have stories in the Talmud and such places, what they call the Agatha. It's an art form to know how to interpret these stories that are found in Talmudic literature. Do they mean it literally? Sometimes they don't mean it literally. Sometimes they make their names up. Sometimes they mean it very exactly. There's no way of telling you, you know, to, to, to know the key, which one is Dafka and which one isn't, so to speak. It's an ideological minefield, my friends. This is basically the interpretation of the period I'm speaking about is precisely what separates the orthodox from the conservative and the secular history telling. This, this is where it boils down to, to the, what happens in the, in the late Second Temple and the immediate post-Temple, Second Temple period. Um, in the 19th century, it was already fought out between uh, people like Heinrich Gretz, who's the most famous story in the 19th century, founder of conservative Judaism in Germany, uh, Yitzhak Isaac Alevi, who you can kind of tell represents the Haredi interpretation of history, uh, big scholar. If His books are hard to read, but Rabbi Victor Miller translates them in English. So if you're a fan of his writings, some of these names like Torah Nation and Exalted People, they give, they give you his party line. Because that's what they're not uh, from Victor Miller, they're from uh, Halevi. And uh, they get very ideological over here. What do we know about these sages? Uh, nothing from the Roman literature. This is the late Professor Stern from Hebrew, uh, Hebrew University, who was murdered by a terrorist when he's walking home about 10, 12 years ago, something like that, I think, or maybe 20 years ago. And uh, he put together, I just didn't schlep it with me, three fat books called Everything That's Out There in the Greek and the Roman Authors, anything in Greek and Latin about the Jews. Even if somebody said, I walked down the street and saw a Chinaman, a, 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 an Italian, a this, and a Jew, you know, totally tangential, he'll put it in there. So it was really a major work of scholarship. Um, and there's very little, almost nothing, about the Jewish elders and the sages and that sort of thing. So it's hard to pull it out of what we call classical literature. Um, it's all from rabbinic literature, which has to be integrated with the Roman literature. Then, of course, there's Christian literature, because Christian Christianity is already a force 
with writings from 70 on. That's a fact. Um, the sages I'm talking about are what we call Tanoim. The first generation, basically, of Tanoim. When you hear that expression, the Tanoim, they're, they're, they're talking about the people now. Uh, if you want to know the names of some of them, we know the names of some. We probably don't know, na- we certainly don't know the names of all of them. But just think about the Haggadah on Pesach. Right? Maisa, what was it? Rebbe Kiva, Rebbe Lezer, Rebbe Lezer Nazaria, Rebbe Yeshua, and uh, who else is it? You know, yeah, we're Tarfan. That were assuming Ben Nebrak. That's most of them. Then there's Rama Gamliel. There's a couple of others, and these are the names you see usually in the Mishnah and such uh, places. Um, but that's only a very few, and we don't know that much about them. One thing we do know that they had a fundamental agenda, which was an obvious one, and that is survive, survive the Romans. That's the famous story of Yochanan Zakkai that I'm sure most of you know. The story is told that he sneaked out of the city, which was under siege. It's famous story in the Agadita and the Talmud. And he got to see Vespasian, the Roman general. And by the time it was all over, Vespasian said, well, I'll destroy the temple, but I'll leave you a few remnants to keep the religion going. That's what it boiled down to. Um, this is a very minimalistic kind of agenda. No, it's not. If you're under the Romans, <laughs> if you can survive, it's like pulling yourself out of the, the, the jaws of the lion. A major item, major element in Jewish life in the immediate aftermath of the destruction of the temple, obviously, Pidyan Shavuyim, ransoming captives, plain and simple. Uh, look at the figures that you find even in Josephus and in some other sources. Um, about 100,000 Jews, maybe more, taken as captives, POWs, you'd say, captives, slaves, not POW, um, to, uh, after the temple's destruction is over. Many die standing in the sun, by the way, if you read about it, uh, the Romans told they counted them like the Nazis, you know, it's, it's uh, of, so it's August, isn't it? In Jerusalem, you know what that means. And uh, they had to stand and be counted all day long, no water, they died. But uh, when all said and done, they're shipped all over the place um, for uh, slaves, to be in gladiator fights, uh, to be part of the games when they celebrate the conquest of Judea and Rome itself, as well as many other cities, Josephus tells us, I remember uh, Beirut is one of them, but, you know, Damascus and places like that. A ton and a half of Jews, men, women, and children, scattered all over the Roman Empire, certainly over the eastern part of the Roman Empire, and there it is. Now, what do you do with them? Uh, the only thing you do is what they said right away. Uh, the only thing we do, we have to raise money, try to raise them out, as many as we can. What, what else can you do? And there are many stories in the Talmud about going even to whorehouses and places like that to try to, because they find kids, the Jewish kids that are, you know, sold into this and sold into that and all kinds of salt mines and places like that. And, uh, and what else, what's your, what's your alternative? This was such a uh, major frenzied activity of the Jews that the uh, Tosefta, which is an ancient source, tells us in Brachos, that we am reading, Amr Lezer and Sadok, Kishoi Ramagamlilo, Beisdino B'Yavnim, when the sages gathered as they did, I'm sure you noticed in Yavna, Hayasukim B'Tzorchi Tzibar, Lo Yimavsikin, Shalasim Yiliban. They didn't daven for long months because they literally were in session 24-7 uh, as much as they could to try to uh, do with all the things that have to do with the day after the Holocaust is over. Uh, ransoming captives, setting, settling Aguna questions, um, hundreds of other similar questions. If, if, if it's a wife of a Kohen, I mean, you know, the, 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 the complexities are, are, are mind-boggling. And simply dealing with the reality of what comes right after uh, the Chorban was a full-time uh, um, you know, uh, uh, occupation for a long time. 
Very interestingly, having lost the Jewish state, these rabbis, these sages, certainly seek very hard to try to save a Jewish church. We usually don't think of Judaism as having a church, but we do, or at least we did. We don't anymore. When I say a church, I mean an organized church, an organized religious body with a top-down kind of structure, authoritatively defining what the religion's all about, certainly the rules, sometimes the doctrines, and things of this nature. I don't know if you've ever even considered it. Here we go, you and I, members of religion, um, how did Mark Twain put it? I'm not the member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat, you know. So he says, or it's Will Rogers. But the point is, you know, you're a member of a Jewish religion. No, you're not. There's no, you know, cardinals. There's no pope. Uh, there's not even a synod. It's not like some of the Protestant denominations have. They have an annual conference and things like that. Conservative Judaism has it. Reformed Judaism has it. Orthodox Judaism antithesis of this. Okay? Uh, but that's not who we are intrinsically. If you go way back when, there was a thing called the Sanhedrin, you know that. And Sanhedrin really is functioning, if I can use this um, uh, model, sort of like the Pope and the Catholic Church, you know, giving the orders down from the top down. Not exactly, of course, but having an ultimate authoritative source of law and everything in Judaism. And once upon a time, this was absolutely vital, without which the Jewish religion could not survive. And you know that Yochum and Zakkai, famous rabbi, that's what he was on to. When he went to the Roman general Vespasian, what did he say? He said, give me Yavdan and scholars, and save the family of the Nasi, save the family of Gamliel, the, 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 the hereditary leaders of the Sanhedrin, which is another way of saying, save the church. And the Romans actually uh, let it happen. Vespasian acquiesced. And so the state went down the tubes, and we never got a state back until very recently, but the church went on for a couple hundred years. Do not, once again, make the mistake, anachronistically, of viewing Judaism today as it being the same thing as it was 2,000 years ago. It wasn't. You understand? And for the next several hundred years, it will not have this character. And the Talmudic Judaism that, well, that we live by, most of us, um, reflects this kind of approach that there's an authoritative body, that lays down rules, as we call drabonons, and uh, uh, today we can't do it because it no longer exists. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we, we live in the aftermath of, of a church, so to speak. Um, a Jewish church will be a basic feature for the next uh, several centuries until the Romans will destroy it in the three four hundreds. That's, that's what's going to happen. Um, the two main elements of the Jewish church, Jewish religious organization, if you like that word better, was the Nasi, the patriarchate, on the one hand, which by this time had been hereditary since in the family of Hillel and remained that way for a couple hundred years, and the Sanhedrin itself, which is a Greek word, but, you know, it means the head based in. The precise division of powers is unclear, and that's always been a problem with the Torah. It's not written like the uh, United States Constitution with a very clear division. This is what the executive does, this is what the legislative does, and this is what the judiciary does. Uh, Even then there are a couple of clashes, but most of the time it works pretty neatly. In the Torah, you don't know who's in charge, right? It's not clear. But nevertheless, they worked it out. And uh, the Sanhedrin, we know from interesting sources, set as its first um, item on its agenda, dealing with the crisis of the oral law, which was in crisis. This we know from an internal rabbinic document. uh, It's very interesting, called the Egeris of Shiragon, 
It was written much later by one of the Gaonim, one of the leaders of the yeshivas in, in the same yeshiva where the Talmud was put together. And without you know, boring you with too many details, Shurabdon, he gives the institutional memory, as it were. He's from Pumbadisa. And he says, I'll just read you a little bit about it, but you'll see that the uh, oral law, which is that the traditions are passed seamlessly from generation to generation, was in a certain crisis as a result of all this junk that was going on over here, called the civil wars, the destruction by the Romans, the aftermath of it. He says that Kamad Haba Beis Hamigdash Kayim, when the temple was around, which means that in the good old days, just as there was no such thing as a fixed or formal kind of prayer, there was also a principled opposition to any kind of fixed or formulaic presentation of the educational material that we call the contents of the oral law. The idea of a text or a textbook was anathema. Now you say, well, what's that all about? Uh, a real teacher doesn't use a textbook. A real teacher. Right? Now, we're not real teachers anymore, but because we all end up using textbooks. But, but not really. You understand what I'm saying. real teacher masters the subject totally, totally, and then gives his or her interpretation of it, and you're just trusting that person, assuming that we were dealing with a competent person, not a charlatan, Trusting that person that even though they're going to put it in different words, the material is going to be correct. That's called basic intellectual integrity. Precisely in the, in the fact that there are no common words. Precisely in the fact that you're speaking to this audience, you're going to do it this way. You're speaking to a different audience, you're going to present it a different way. Therein lies the integrity of the intellectual process. At least that's the way they saw it in those days. It's very strange to us today because we live in a very different kind of world as far as information is concerned. I get that. But you understand what I'm saying a little bit at least. And if you want to have a little bit of an idea of what I'm talking about, once again, think of the four sons in the Passover Haggadah. The wise son and the wicked son and all that. Each one is told the story of Passover in a different way. Now the modern person says, no, you have to tell the exact historical fact. That's not the way they saw it. Because the facts aren't what counts. History is the meaning is extracted from them, the synthesis of the factoids. And that is what they regarded once upon a time the Torah Shavuot as being about. And therefore they were in principle opposed to saying there's anything like a Mishnah or any particular way of putting it. Everyone should give it whatever they wish. People were smart. And it didn't take too much um, uh, trouble to, to, to make this system work. Keep in the heart base Hamikdash, but when the temple was destroyed, the second temple, is Badra Bonu Chotzad, and the rabbis scattered everywhere. You just imagine what the Roman invasion was like, and the aftermath. Shemahana Mahumas Shemana Mishibushim, as a result of the confusions, the upheavals, the massacres that were going on at that time. Shaliba Beosesman Lo Shimshu Talmi Chotzarchan. Obviously, students couldn't couldn't study properly. Right? You can't exactly have a calm university system going in the middle of a war zone. When the fish of Machlokes and all kind of arguments arose, because now she and Zakai from the time of Yochum and Zakai and Armagamliel, the period that I'm speaking about right now, and what um, uh, goes on in great lengths about all this sort of thing, I just want to say, I'll read you a key point. And it turned out that the sages that we're talking about turned this into a very important era in Jewish intellectual history. Religious history, 
when there was a little bit of sheket after destruction, they sat down and made a determined effort to try to recover, you know what I say, to recover the many halachos and other traditions that were lost. That had been, basically lost because of miscommunications, mistranslations, you know, uh, not assigning the right person who said it. Uh, did they say it's mutter? Did they say it's usher? You know, um, you don't have the calm that's necessary for this kind of culture to proceed normally. Because of the because of the, 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 the terrible times in which they lived. So this may seem a little bit intellectual and boring to some people, but I can assure you it's of absolutely fundamental importance to, what, 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 uh, to the lives that we live today, to be perfectly honest. And all this is going on in this period over here because they felt that there's a unified legal voice was absolutely necessary if you're going to have a church. You can't have a situation like we have today. This rabbi said it's okay, that one said it's not okay, this one says that, that, that it's kosher, that one's not a kosher, this one said this, that one said that. They would be absolutely horrified by that. Uh, these are the stories that we know from the first generation of Tanoim. I know some of you know what I'm talking about. Rabbi Gamliel gets deposed, he's too bossy, they put another one in, he comes back. And he says, I'm only doing this, I'm trying to get some order into the system. And the others say, no, we don't want to be uh, dominated by somebody who's trying to be too, uh, you know, uh, hegemonic. And, you know, these all reflect the fact there's a profound tension going on in the aftermath of the destruction. What's interesting is that Vespasian and Titus obviously were okay with this. Meaning, they didn't interfere in this rabbinic process that I was just describing. They seem to have had no issue with a Jewish church, only with a Jewish state. That's interesting. When Rabbi, when Rabbi Yochum and Zakai said, give me Yavne as a place for the scholars to go, he said, okay. When he said, save the family of the patriarch of the Nazi, he said, okay. The Medrash tells him he was afraid to ask to save the temple. But the church, well, it's, it's okay. Who is this Vespasian guy anyway? We're entering now a period... In, uh, in Roman history and therefore in Jewish history of what we call the, uh, the Flavian uh, dynasty. Uh, there had been the Emperor Nero. The first emperor is Augustus. Then it's followed by uh, Tiberius and then uh, Caligula and Claudius and then Nero. And Nero was a nut, I'm sure you all know that. And, uh, and at the end, he bankrupted everything and he made things even worse and then they killed him and then all hell broke loose because until then there had been an imperial family when this one died, he succeeded by his son or his nephew or something like that, what they call the Julio-Claudian dynasty. But now who's in charge? Since no one's in charge, everybody tried to grab power for himself. And so what they had in Roman history was the year of the three emperors, Galba, Atho, and Vitellius. Each one was a general or a senator who wanted to grab power, and it became a situation where the person who's going to be the next ruler of Rome is the one who has the strongest army. Oh, if you're going to go by the strongest army, then it's Vespasian. And the reason is, even though he was a peasant by background, but he was commanding the army in Judea, that was a victorious army. The legions respected him. He had a record back fighting in Britain and on the Rhine. And so the army basically favored him as the most competent general, which he was. And therefore he killed the others. You know, that's a, then he became the emperor of Rome, which is a shock for the Roman system because it's supposed to be only from the upper class. You know, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, all these guys were members of the aristocracy. Uh, they had all the decadence <laughs> and all the high class uh, stuff of the, of the aristocracy. But that's who they were. And the rest of the Romans viewed them in that light. Vespasian came up through the ranks. 
understand? He was from a peasant background, and he worked himself up through the ranks, um, and he killed the others and took over. And uh, he left it to his, uh, him and his kids afterwards, to the Jews, to put it in simple terms. For the next quarter century, you're under, under the Vespasian group. If you want to call it the Vespasian Mafia, you can call that also, because none of these guys are nice guys. You don't get to be Emperor Rome unless you kill your way into power, and you make sure every once in a while to kill all the others who might possibly be in trouble. As, as some famous Roman emperor said, he said, you've got to cut your nails, don't you? <laughs> he said, you can't let them grow. So this is uh, you know, how, how, uh, how it's done in those days. Um, now, the point I'm bringing out is that Vespasian was a capable emperor and uh, a very practical kind of guy as far as we know. And he immediately found himself in a tremendous financial crisis. He took over the empire, which was as bankrupt as America. They were in the hole for trillions. Uh, all I need to tell you is Nero. And <laughs> you can understand what we're talking about. And so, uh, I mean, they, they were, I don't, you, you don't know what this figure means, but there were 40 billion sesterces in the hole. That's a bad debt, okay? And, uh, and how are you going to do it? Uh, Vespasian rolled up his uh, sleeve, so to speak. It's very famous in history. And he said, we're going to do it through heavy taxes and cutting uh, government. Uh, you know, he's going to be one of these extreme right-wing Republicans and, uh, um, you know, uh, balancing the books no matter what it takes. And uh, he taxed everything, okay? He's very famous in history for, uh, what do we got over here? You got the one, let's go to the next one. Yeah, he always said, a money doesn't stink. My opinion, I don't know it, right? And the reason is, he's famous, he put the urinal tax, uh, which they still have in Italy today. And uh, that's, what keeps the, that's what keeps the country in the, <laughs> rolling, you know? And... Uh, for those of you who are interested in, in Romance languages, in uh, French and Italian and some of these other languages, Vespasian is still named for a public bathroom, Vespasianus. The, uh, <laughs> try it next time you're in Spain, Portugal, uh, France, or Italy. You know. the, uh, no, I mean it. The, the, the point is, his son said to him, Titus says, this is a lousy way to collect money, and he says money doesn't smell. You know? And the reason I'm, I'm, I'm going through all this is to say he had bigger fish to fry than to worry about the Jews. Do you get it? He had major issues and trying to keep the Roman, Roman Empire, which he had, had taken over, um, afloat. Now, listen to this. He could have balanced the books from the base of Migdash loot. You understand? The money, we're told, by the Roman historians that they took from Jerusalem was so vast, it was just unbelievable. Uh, we don't realize, you and I don't realize, what a ton of money, besides the Kesev Azov that was all over the base of Migdash anyway, the gold and silver, this was a national bank, like the Fort Knox. That's where the Jews kept all their deposits. And so the Romans took away a huge amount of money, and he could have balanced the books, but he didn't use it for that. And the reason is, he's a Roman. As a Roman, you've got to worry about your public image, right? your legitimacy, and your place in history. And in order to do that, you have to, if, you, if you want to... And remember, he's, he basically is not legitimate as an emperor. He fought his way to the throne. He's got to legitimate himself within the Roman culture. And so the way you do that, of course, is to take all that money and use it to build this. Right? We were not long ago in Rome. Many of us were on my trip. And the uh, first thing they say, oh, yeah, which is true. They said the Colosseum built, they say like the Colosseum built by the Jews. No, it was not built by the Jews. It was built by slaves with Jewish money. It wasn't Jewish money. The Jews didn't, didn't contribute to rebuilding the Colosseum. It was the loot from Jerusalem. Right? Now, there were other Colosseums. He wanted to do the Colosseum of all times. And if you've ever been in Rome or familiar with it, you can go online and Google it. It was something out of the movies. 
You understand? It was a coliseum to end all coliseums with movable floors, and they could have uh, water shows and uh, sea battles and alligator things. And Titus once had a party where they killed five thousand animals at one shot. You know, people should. They want this. This is what the Romans call fun. And he wanted to have a place that's the fun palace beyond all fun palaces. And then people will say like this: You know, Vespasian killed his way in the throne. Robert, look, you know, he built the Colosseum. You know, he, he's clearly shown that he's capable of being an emperor. So he'd rather use the money to build one of these uh, uh, fun palaces than uh, balance the books. And to balance the books, he did the hard way. So it kind of tells you a lot about who he was and about the Roman Empire at that time and the situation the Jews had to put up with because Josephus goes into great detail to describe the triumphal parade of, of uh, Vespasian and Titus after the Corbin. And it's, it goes on and on, page after page. There were unbelievable games and dedication ceremonies. Obviously, this was very painful for the Jews to watch. Right? It's not simply using our money. What are you using our money for? Right? They didn't take the money use it for cancer research. <laughs> what are you using money for? for? For the Roman games? Where they kill people for fun? You know what the gladiator is all about. You know what they feed them to the lions. And everything. This, is, this is what the, it, it, the, the, the artistic side is so painful of how the Jewish wealth ended up in what they call Kerkasiyah Shal Edom. But it happened, as we all know. The Chazal, um, well, they had their attitude towards it. But nevertheless, having said all this, Vespasian, as far as we can tell, having crushed the Jews, and he and his son destroyed the temple and all the rest of it, his attitude towards the Jews was, uh, okay, now it's over, let's go back to, to regular. Um, this is due partially to the fact Listen closely. The vast majority of the Jewish people in the Roman Empire, including even in Israel, were not participating in the revolt against Rome. One of the reasons the great revolt that broke out in 66, 67 against Rome, one of the reasons it failed, there are many reasons, one of the reasons it failed is the revolution did not capture the imagination of the Jewish people. That's going to be very different when we get to Bar Kokhba, but I'm talking about the original revolt against Rome. Most Jews wisely said, this is not going to work, this is stupid, I don't want to be part of it. And the Romans, very wisely, from the beginning, applied the rule of divide and emperor, divide and conquer. And Vespasian, at the very beginning of the war, said, any Jewish community that's not part of the war, just put up a white flag, nothing will happen to you. And it was true. And so there were a huge number of Jews in Israel, and certainly outside of Israel, in places like Rome itself, and Alexandria, and the rest of the Roman Empire, who simply said, this political thing that's happening in Judea is not something that we agree with, and we're not participating, and we're loyal to Rome, which was, which was a fact. They had no choice. That's what they have to be. And so Vespasian knew there were plenty of Jews still throughout the Roman Empire, and they were not opposing him. And therefore, he didn't go to war against them, so to speak. Uh, to the Jews as a nation, nothing. But as a religion, he offers tolerance, which is a Roman kind of attitude. Uh, Chazal, the rabbis, quite aware of this. And therefore, they realized they have to tread very carefully in the new environment, Many of the stories in the Mishnah and places like that have to be read against this background. I'm sure many will be familiar with the story of the Ramah Gamliel when he ran the show with the Nazi, had an extremely uh, restrictive admissions policy. Do you remember this? He said, nobody can base matters. So many think like this. He was a snob or something like that. a so, too yeshivish. Uh, nobody can get into fancy literature yeshiva. No. It was very dangerous to have people inside who might blab. You get it? We need people tochel kabaro were transparently honest, and therefore they're not going to go and tell the Romans that we're doing anything wrong over here. 
the, 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 the message we're getting out is this has to do with the church, has to do with religion, has to do with rituals, we're discussing prayers, we're discussing Sabbath laws, all which is true, uh, and we're discussing marriage and divorce laws, has nothing to do with politics. Now, that's not really true because the Torah culture has something to do with politics, and we don't feel too great about Edom, as the expression used to be called in those days. But they say they leave that to God. Now, what I'm saying is very important because Bar Kokhba is going to interpret this differently, right? But their idea was a kind of political quiescence, but it's only, you're only politically quiescent because you're very aware of the facts on the ground. And so we reserve our hopes, and we do not give up our hopes for restoration of the temple, for restoration of a Jewish state, for the coming of a heroic, possibly a messianic figure. Uh, we can reverse this situation, but not now, not today, and not us. And that's simply because we're realists. We're not going to be like those misguided fools, unfortunately, who tore the whole thing down just yesterday, who were responsible for the destruction of everything. We're not going to do that. And so they had to tread very carefully, and therefore you understand that Jewish leaders like Armageddon and others had to be very, very careful of who they allow in into the inner circle. And uh, Jews have a tendency to have a big, fat mouth. Would you agree with that statement? Oh, yeah. yeah, okay. So um, Vespasian, as I said had his hands full, consolidating his own power and dealing with all kinds of Roman conspiracies. He probably figured the Jews weren't his main problems. He treated Josephus very well, because Josephus was clearly on his side. He moved to Rome and wrote books which praised Vespasian. Uh, the Jews in the first decade, in 70 to 80, were in shock. Uh, they're not thinking about any rebellion. They're just thinking to survive. And Vespasian died 10, year, uh, ten years afterwards. This is a famous painting before of the triumph of Titus. Okay, uh, that, that's, that's Vespasian as Titus behind him. That's actually historically kind of accurate. That's the reason I put it in there. The um, uh, point is that uh, within 10 years, the old guy died. Uh, Vespasian, he wasn't young. And his son Titus took over. That's the statue we have of him. Uh, Titus, of course, we know was the one who actually uh, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the base of Igdosh. Uh, Vespasian had gone back in the middle of the war to become emperor of Rome. Um, Titus was uh, emperor only for two years. Um, during his short reign, the Roman Empire was hit by a bunch of natural disasters, which the Jews said, yes. Right? Uh, that's when the last days of Pompeii happened under Titus. Right? Mount Vesuvius blew up, and the city was, you know, you, you, you know what these are. These are people that are stuck forever like that because they're covered by the lava. Correct? Which is such a vivid sign of what the Jews certainly interpret divine anger. Uh, the Roman Empire was hit by a major plague which uh, devastated the population during this same time and um, it's also true that a great fire burst out in Rome, city of Rome and burned down three quarters of the city. So uh, Titus may have been called uh, by the Senate Titus the Beloved but I'm sure the average Roman called him Titus the Shlomazel, you know. They, uh, um, you can just imagine how the Jews interpreted these events but uh, don't look for anything explicit from the rabbis. That's not going to happen. Um, none of this, by the way, prevented Titus from celebrating the opening of the Colosseum. Right? Uh, let's go back. <laughs> none of this prevented uh, Titus from celebrating the opening of the Colosseum with 100 days of games. I mean, I want you to think about that. That's the federal government spent, well, it's free food, it's free uh, entertainment at the thing, you know, it's all, it's all for free. The bread and circuses, right? 100 days. That's three months um, of, of vacations. 
I mean, think about that. <laughs> Everything grinds to a halt. Even the federal government doesn't do that. The, um, um, and, and from working to finish off the once fancy Arch of Titus, celebrating his victory over the Jews. He wants to really uh, live it up there. This is the Arch of Titus. Howard took this picture for our last trip in, in Rome. Um, it's a pale, it's, it's been worn down over 2,000 years. What you see now is not what it originally looked like. It was fancy schmancy, as you can see from, from, from the uh, erosion, I guess you say, from the elements that's going on for a long time. Once upon a time, it was something else. And it's supposed to celebrate, of course, as we know, the triumph over Jerusalem and over the Jews, uh, as I'm sure everybody knows. Um, the point is that Titus was in for a short time. He partied it up, but the, at the same time, Rome went through some pretty devastating types of situations. But we, we don't find that he went and persecuted the Jews when he was emperor in those two years. Basically, both the father and son allowed the sages to teach and discuss religious uh, matters as long as it didn't become political. Um, very fascinatingly, during this period, the 70s and the 80s, and the 90s, um, for the first time, the great rabbis from the Mishnah time go to Rome and appear for the first time as the official representatives, you might say, of the Jewish people. As I said, prior to this, you used to have these decadent aristocrats who will tell you, we are the leaders of the Jews, and this is what you should do. And now you get a different type of individual showing up over there, and um, it's quite uh, remarkable. Uh, well, you'll see in a minute, the results of this are not necessarily what people would imagine. Um, Titus drops dead suddenly. He's 41 years old, after two years. Uh, the Gemara says a bug went up his nose and ate away his brain. Uh, Zaria de Rossi, the famous Renaissance rabbi who was uh, the first historian, said, now that didn't happen. Titus was poisoned, that's what the Romans say, uh, by his brother. And the Marawa Prague said Titus died from a brain tumor. That's the meaning of the bug going up his nose and pecking away at it. It was a brain tumor. Um, so uh, all we know is he dies under mysterious circumstances, and his brother, the next emperor, Domitian, comes in, and this guy was a real son of a gun. He was very anti-Semitic. Okay? He's the emperor from 82 to 96, for 14 years. Uh, he did not like Jews. Okay? Now, I'm sure Vespasian also didn't. He, he destroyed the, the, the rebellion. I'm sure Titus also didn't destroy that. He destroyed the base of Ignatius. But if you're going to be historical about it, you ask, what do we have during their reign that they did against the Jews? Nothing particular. The mission is not like that. Um, suspicious by nature, uh, well, Domitian was an interesting guy. He's like one of these uh, Nero types. He was an able administrator in general, but he was an intriguer and very suspicious, who killed all kind of people, you know, typical Roman emperor, um, but killed more than necessary. Uh, suspicious by nature, he's very suspicious of the Jews, on a number of accounts. Uh, first of all, and very interestingly, and this is what I'm going to say tonight, because I don't want to speak too long. Um, first of all, he regards Judaism as a dangerously attractive religion, which is funny, because the Jewish religion has just been destroyed. Uh, but it's not so simple. We know from history, and maybe from the Gomorrahs, I'll show you in a second. We know from history, a fascinating story, that this is for a miniseries, not for a movie, as I like to say. Um, you have the case of Flavius Clemens, who was a nephew, listen to this, he was a nephew of Vespasian, okay, he was the son of Vespasian's brother, um, he was the first cousin of Domitian, in other words. He's the emperor's first cousin. He was also married to Domitian's sister. So he's the emperor's uh, cousin and brother-in-law. He's from the inner, inner, inner circle. Domitian, by the way, was childless. And he had designated the two sons of Flavius Clemens as his successors. 
They were the Caesars. He was the Augustus. They were the Caesars. So they're destined to take over when Domitian goes. Domitian will die. He'll be assassinated in year 96. In the year 95, one year before that, Flavius Clemens, who was the consul of Rome at that time, which is it's the emperor and, and, and the most hush of a guy. So it's a, he's a cousin, a brother-in-law, this, that, and the other. He's the consul of Rome, suddenly arrested and executed. Well, you say, well, that's very common. Domitian executed everybody. Not for treason. All these guys are always killed for treason. That's not the charge against Flavius Clemens, who has no reason to be traitorous. He's next in line. His whole family's going to be in there. He's arrested and he's executed for atheism. This is what Dio Cassius, the famous Roman historian, says, not me. Um, what does atheism mean in Rome? Rejected the Roman religion. How can someone from the upper, upper, upper element of the Roman uh, culture, out of whose ranks come the Cohen Godel, the Pontifus Maximus, and all the uh, Roman priests, and all the high religious figures? Um, he rejected the Roman religion, and Dio Cassius, the famous historian, tells us that what it means is that Clemens was arrested for having Jewish beliefs. Now, what does this mean? Well, let me know for sure. Christians claim, he was, Jewish believe me, he was a Christian, and therefore he's a saint in the church. Um, that's not what Jews say. Jewish believe me, Jewish beliefs. Um, this was an era, remember, when Judaism, although militarily crushed, still continued to exercise a fascination for many, many pagans, including, as you see, upper-class Romans. This is also the era of the many visits to Rome by the sages. You can start to put two and two together, although, as with archaeology, we never have you know, decisive proof for any of this. Um, let me read you, for example, I'm sure some know this, it's a Mishnah. To give you an idea what I'm talking about, it's a Mishnah in Avodah A Mishnah, I tell you, about a visit of Rabbi Gamliel to Rome, which he does on a number of occasions, to negotiate with the government on behalf of the Jews or things like that. And what does it mean he comes to Rome? He said, well, you know, he goes and he hangs out in the Jewish neighborhood, because there was a Jewish neighborhood in Rome. There was. Uh, but he also interacts with government officials. He meets senators and people like that. And who? He goes to the synagogue. What kind of people go to the synagogue 2,000 years ago? You say, well, Jews. That's not true. Jews do go to Shul, no question about it. But majority, you'll be surprised. I've said this on many occasions, however, so maybe you won't be surprised if you've heard me speak before. You'll be surprised to hear that in those areas, outside of Israel, in the uh, Roman Empire particularly, in the Greco-Roman world, on a typical Saturday morning, the majority of people attending services in the synagogue would not be Jewish. It's not against the Jewish religion to have someone who's not Jewish in the shul, correct? We don't, I mean, it's not the Mormons or anything like that. Anybody can come if they want to be respectful and just observe. And there was a lot that, was, that people found attractive, some people found attractive, in the Jewish worship and the idea of a single God without all the idols in the middle. If you're a Roman of a certain type, and especially if you're from the upper class and you know what's going on in the inside, it's kind of hard to believe in the divine Vespasian, in the divine Nero, in these ceremonies of the gods when you know what goes on behind closed doors. You understand? Um, even Vespasian says a famous story. When he was dying, he said, people started worshipping. He said, oh, I must be becoming a god. He made fun of himself. But they did it anyway. The idea is that there was, throughout these centuries, I would say from really starting from the time of Alexander the Great, but certainly picking up steam in the first century BCE and afterwards, and that's what we're talking about, we're talking about the first century CE, a profound crisis of paganism, an intellectual, 
and moral crisis of paganism swept the uh, pagan world in very fascinating ways, um, totally having nothing to do with Judaism. Uh, the, the religion didn't work for them anymore. Um, the belief systems seemed to be empty. Uh, they didn't offer a reasonable explanation for life in the universe. I would say organized religion is going through that phase right now. When you look at the figures, especially in Europe, uh, what I see in, in some countries, in Norway, I just read in the paper, 1% go to church. Because to show you, I would, I would call that a profound crisis of religion. You understand? Uh, same thing happened in, 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 in the Roman Empire. And as a result, uh, thoughtful people were looking for alternatives. Usually what happens when religions collapse and lose their vitality is they're not replaced by other religions, they're usually replaced by cults. Right? And cults are characterized by extreme behavior. No question that this happened in the Greco-Roman world in the first century BC and the first century C. For absolutely that happened. And many people went into all kind of weirdo types of cults, and I mean weird from, from extreme right to extreme left. You know, from uh, renouncing the world and going to become monks and nuns, like the Neo-Pythagoreans, to uh, um, endless partying like the Epicureans, and, uh, you know, swallowing God so he can't run away from you, uh, like, like, like the Egyptian practices. There are all kinds of strange sorts of things that, go in, that, 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 that popped up along the way. And that simply reflects the fact that people are looking for an alternative. Some people, not all, some people thought they found an alternative in this strange religion called Judaism. You understand? Uh, they kind of like the idea of an invisible God who made everything. Kind of makes more sense. They kind of like the idea of a very strong sense of right and wrong. And not this relativism that characterizes the Roman culture so much, in which this is okay for some, it's not okay for others, everything goes. I mean, just think of a Roman party, I need to say no more. Um, and, then you see, and then you have the local Jewish community, and they present an altogether different type of message. And some people that turn off, but some people that turn on. And when I say some people, uh, often people with education. And it might even be a member of the imperial family. And we find, as I say before, when they meet Jewish representatives, not Herodian uh, aristocrats, but to meet somebody like Rabbi Akiva or Amagamliel or people like that who know what they're talking about, the case they make for Judaism, not that they're going looking for converts because we don't do that, but if they meet people in the synagogue or another place and they ask them, well, look at this. The Mishnah says, Shaul Lewis has a Canaan Baromi that the, uh, the, the, the Romans asked the, uh, the rabbis in Rome. Uh, if God doesn't like idols and pagan deities, why doesn't he get rid of them? Now, it's, a, it's a fair question if you're a pagan. If your God's so strong and powerful, he said, you know, these are just rhetorical answers. He said, you know, if people worshipped uh, things that were dispensable, so maybe God would get rid of them. But if they worship the sun, they worship the stars, what are they supposed to do? Get rid of the, the planets? You know, saying those destroy nature? And then they say, then get rid of the things which are dispensable and keep the things which are indispensable. And then they say, oh no, then they say, see, the, the, the weak things that he got rid of, those are not God's, but the things God was not able to get rid of, those are God's. It doesn't matter. It's a, very, it's a highly simplistic uh, rendering of what clearly was a very sophisticated conversation between Jews and pagans in the city of Rome. And there's a Canaan, their elders, notice they're, they're, they're rabbis uh, uh, probably visiting from Israel uh, in Rome, in which they're asking fundamental questions of philosophy and religion. And they don't just say, oh, it's thinking Jew. 
You see? And so the result is very, very interesting. Uh, as I say before, this is a period when Judaism uh, exercised a fascination for many thinking pagans. Um, and uh, this raises a lot of fascinating questions which cannot be answered. For example, is this the Uncleus story? Because we're told in uh, the Talmud elsewhere there was a guy, Uncleus, who was a nephew of the emperor, and uh, as you know, eventually converted to Judaism, even though the emperor didn't like it. Uh, he's supposed to be emperor of Hadrian and nephew of Hadrian. As far as we know, Hadrian didn't have any kind of relatives that were Jewish. Uh, it's possible, of course, but it doesn't seem like it. Much more likely, can't tell for sure, and I might be wrong, it's much more likely the Jewish idea, the story they heard, that there was somebody who was a nephew of the emperor who renounced it all, willing to renounce it all, and put a mezuzah up and go to Israel, sounds like it's a Flavius Clemens type story. It was a guy like that, who, as I told you before, was from the upper, upper, upper. Or better yet, there's a story in the Gemara um, of Odezar, which, which really sounds like this. Uh, again, I'll just read you a short passage. Uh, it says, Ketia Bar Shalom. There was a guy who they call Ketia Bar Shalom. Uh, Clemens, by the way, is a little bit like Shalom Clemens, you know. The uh, There was a certain emperor, the Gemara tells the story. But remember, when you read in the rabbinic literature, you have to understand how the literary qualities of the Agata to work. There was a certain emperor who didn't like the Jews. He asked his high counselors in the Roman Empire, somebody has a wart or something like that on his foot, should he leave it alone and suffer, or should he just cut it off? The Jews, of course, being the wart. Uh, so the uh, advisor said he should cut it off, all of which is another way of saying kill all the Jews, uh, which Domitian was the kind of guy who could do this. But anyway, Amalu Katib Shalom said it's one guy who dissented. He said, uh, first of all, it won't work because you can't get rid of all the Jews simply because they're scattered all over the world. Right? If you kill all the Jews in the Roman Empire, there are plenty of Jews in Persia and places like that. And uh, second of all, he says, uh, give him some other argument. And they'll, anyway, it will, it, they'll call your uh, kingdom a uh, severed king, meaning you can't afford the economic loss. Let's put it away. The sovereignty of Jews. Um, well, that's the story they would give it. And according to the account, the Kemper said, Yeah, that's a good argument, so I accept the arguments, but you should die. Uh, you have to be executed. For, for, for uh, disagreeing with the emperor. Okay? Which means holding Jewish opinions. Um, when he was uh, going out to be executed, his wife said, oh, it's a pity that you weren't circumcised. And he said, yes, I really was. Uh, that's the story they want to say over there. And as he dies, he says, in the classic formulaic expression, I leave all my money to Rabbi Kiva Chaver. <laughs> I leave it all near Israel. <laughs> right? <laughs> they, uh, and Rabbi Kiva said, uh, you know, in other words, he he, he, he fulfills what the verse that talks about half for Aaron and half for his children. And the bottom line is, a boss call at the end of the story, a voice from heaven comes out and says, this guy's a one-way ticket to heaven. Ketiyah bar shalom, mezum He gets into heaven just like that. He's a martyr. And, and then the end of the story, just to make it really good, is Rabbi Yudha Nasi then says, see one... Some people have to work all their life to get all of them. Some guy can get it in one second. Um, who is this person? Maybe there was a guy named Katia Barsham, because I don't know. It's, it's very possible. Um, it's also possible that there... Uh, let, me, let me say this, and with this I'll conclude. As a historian, if you're looking at what was going on at that time, and we ask ourselves the question, do we have any records of any high-class high, high, high Romans who were killed 
because of Jewish sympathies, the types of things that I just read you, more or less? The answer is yes. And it's pretty doggone frustrating. I'll tell you why. If he just would have held out for another 12 months, this guy would have been the next emperor of Rome. True or not? I just told you. The Romans tell us that Domitian had told his kids that they'll be his successors. He would be the father of the, uh, the next emperors of Rome. Uh, boggles the imagination. I'm sure there's a lot of stories that are hidden under all this. And I'm sure if Akiva and others said, oh, this could have been a Mashiach type situation. Let's put it this way. I'm just playing what if. You know, why not? We could have a little fun. If this guy would become the next emperor of Rome in the year 96, uh, you could rebuild the temple. Why not? The Romans the ones knocked it down. The Jews always had in their mind that maybe the Romans would change their mind, which they could do. Now, it didn't happen, but it could, could happen. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a very painful and very uh, uh, fascinating kind of, of um, speculation. What does emerge from this narrative, and from the Roman historians, is that in the aftermath of the destruction of the Second Temple, and the utter destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish state, Judaism was still a potent force in world thought one which could win over even Roman princes if they were exposed to the teaching of Judaism in the real way by people who really knew what they're talking about. As we shall see, however, what most Gentiles came eventually to be exposed to, including Roman big shots, as time went on, was not genuine Judaism, but a knockoff, a kind of weird, syncretistic sect of Judaism, which was constructed, however, in such a manner as was calculated to appeal to masses of people in the Roman Empire. Uh, that, of course, is something that we will explore next time. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot rabbi david